Chapter Five of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Five: Some Humble Orchids. Pink lady slippers is wonderful plenty this season over in Old Hemlocks," said Time o' Year, coming suddenly upon us one afternoon in late May, when I was sauntering through the upper hemlock lane looking for fertile fronds of the three flowering ferns, royal, cinnamon, and claytonia, which grow in the roadside runnels, Nell following at her browsing leisure. I never see so many in bud and blow before, he continued. There's usually some bunches of them in the Glen Woods, and a few scattering down the ridge by tree bridge, like as if they was stepping careful and choosing their footin so's not to get runnin' and fall in the river. But up there in old hemlocks, they're just settin' round among the broken stubs and on the edge of root bowls thick as a picnic. Yet, for all that, they don't seem a mite less curious than when they're in twos and threes. Every one on em looks, hands off, and sets up a different way from the next. Time of year thus keenly sensed the leading feature of the entire orchid tribe, unusualness. To the general public, even the word orchid has a foreign sound that conjures up a flower of glowing color, perched bird-like in the treetops of a tropic jungle, or entertained as an honored guest in a hothouse, where all conditions are arranged to suit the caprice of its air-feeding appetite. For, to the majority, the orchid is, above all things, an air plant. Yet, of the five thousand or more species that range over the temperate and warmer portions of the globe, it is only in the tropics that the epiphytes, drawing their sustenance from the air, are of frequent occurrence. The tribe of the orchid comprises many households under one general roof, and the habits of this original family are as variable as their colors. An orchid may grow from a bulb, a hard coral-like corm, or a mat of fleshy or tuberous roots. It may live in a treetop in torrid regions, or it may inhabit the depths of cold, sunless northern bogs. It may lend rich color to the grasses of an open meadow, or flourish equally well in the dry, crumbling mold of evergreen woods. It may, according to its kind, bear flowers a hand's breadth in size, of exquisite coloring to attract the insects upon whose services this race so largely depends for fertilization of seed, or it may have a blossom so dull in color or so minute that, as in some of the habanarias, a microscope is needed to make its naming sure. The flowers may grow singly on a wholly leafless scape, in spikes or in drooping panicles. They may have broad, fringed, thin, narrow, or bearded lips, like the showy fringed purple and green orchises and the rose-colored pogonia, or be pouched as in the cypripediums or ladies' slippers, both foreign and native. You will, however, find a strong family cast of feature, an eccentric lip-type in every one, and if you will carefully scan the features of the crystal-white rattlesnake plantain and ladies tresses of our woods and low meadows you will see the same lineaments as in the rare greenhouse beauties which peer through a veil of costly ferns to make a bride's bouquet 
Here in New England, such orchids as we have mingle humbly in the earth with lowly plants of bog and wood, and yet retain their marks of race and breeding, for even the children that pick them carelessly on their way cross lots, or going up through the tree-bridge woods to school, carrying them in tight-fisted bunches to their teacher, recognize them fully as being not just common flowers. Beauty and fragrance are the chief attributes of this royal race. Even though the seed pod of one genus is the vanilla bean of commerce, and one or two of the tuberous rooted species furnish a medicinal paste, the tribe is not so notable for these as that it harbors the dove-like winged petals of the holy spirit flower, the butterfly orchid of the tropics, the moccasin flowers of our woods, and the lovely fringed orchises of the wet meadows. Orchids offer structural problems quite as intricate as the higher mathematics. For every part of the flower, every color, tint, and spot, as well as the specialized perfume, has its own share in the system of signals which the magician has furnished the blossom, that it may call the insect best suited to its needs. However, this whole subject of insect fertilization belongs to science, to the biological botanist. It is too profound and serious a matter for a summer day in the field, or to be awkwardly fingered by the nature lover who follows the flower trail for the pleasure of eye and ear. For the rest it brings to the brain and the peace to the soul. No less a man than Darwin has confessed that after devoting twenty years to their study, he doubted if he perfectly understood the contrivance to secure fertilization possessed by one single orchid. Of the sixty species of orchids found east of the Mississippi and north of Carolina and Tennessee, New England claims a scant fifty. Only a dozen of these can be called landscape flowers, even in the narrowest sense. The rest belong to the realm of the analytic botanist. One thing is easy to remember about an orchid. The flower is made up of two groups, three petals and three sepals, like so many of the lily tribe, its near kin, also that of the three petals. The lower one, acting as a lip, which is always noticeable, gives individuality and character to each species, while the sepals, or the outer three petals, often unite to form a sort of hood above the lip lending the flower, according to its type, the appearance of a bird, a butterfly, or some other winged insect. It is this peculiar combination of pouched lip and streaming petals and sepals that gives the rare calypso of cold bogs, which ventures farther north than any of its brothers, creeping well up into both Alaska and Labrador, a more truly moccasin-like appearance than those that bear the name of moccasin flower. Calypso's shoe, raised on a stem above a single broad leaf, is dull pink and furred inside with soft hairs. It has a curious, overlapped, double-pointed toe of pale yellow. A little rosette of shaded pink and yellow trims the instep, while the narrower petals blow in the breeze like ribbons meant to fasten the shoe about the ankle of its phantom wearer. Orchids have the parallel-veined leaves that we associate with lilies, and in these also there is much variety, the leaves of the species growing in woods and open places where they have 
plenty of room being larger and more fully developed than those that have to struggle through a heavy undergrowth of grass and rank weeds in meadow and bog so that with our native orchids the leaves range from those of the moccasin flowers where there is either a single pair as long and broad as the hand or several large leaves growing up the stalk bellwort fashion to the thread-like appendages of the slender grass-growing ladies tresses or tracies as the word once read if the often advanced theory is true that all the plants now bearing flowers originally consisted only of leaves like ferns and that from these leaves the ornamental parts of the flowers were developed then the orchid has kept many traces of its ancient descent for there are several species of our inconspicuous orchises whose petals still appear to partake strongly of the leaf nature all this time six feet are loitering along the road toward the old hemlocks two wearing leather shoes and four iron both wearers absorbed in the spring greenery leather shoes reveling with her eyes iron shoes with her mouth the old hemlocks are not the woods that follow sagatuck time o year's stream nor the midway aspetuck but the companions of a river that once threaded the mill-ponds on its course like a string of glistening beads passing sawmills grist-mills mills with great wooden overshot wheels that circle slowly like a moving flight of steps spreading magic rings of greenery about them by their splash and spray there was even a little place half forge half sawmill set in a deep ravine among the rocks that turned out musket stalks and axe helves now all save one of the clattering wheels along the river's course have been silenced by the decrees of so-called progress and the buying power of a water company twice have these grand old woods been wasted by the axe and once by fire yet much of their beauty still remains for tirelessly these many times does the magician heart of nature renew his sway bind together replant covering bare rocks with cheerful polypodes and softening decrepitude and age with a drapery of vines before he finally yields his kingdom reluctantly to heart of man the great hemlocks from which this wood took name had vanished some by the axe others blown over lifting the soil with their roots so that depressions sometimes three feet deep and fifteen feet across remained to be filled in time with pure leaf mold these tree bowls whether they are found in evergreen or other woods are always sure to be gardens of odd plants and two years before soon after the brush had been burned i had seen groups of the pairs of strongly ribbed green leaves that promised a wealth of pink moccasin flowers later on in giving english or as the saying is popular names to plants it is well to have if possible a fixed code free from localisms and based upon priority and reason as in the case of latin names such a code is established by britain and brown in their illustrated flora of the northern united states and by l h bailey in the cyclopedia of american horticulture etc in adding the most tangible english name to every plant possessing one and often giving the many local titles in parenthesis as it were to help the unlearned to establish flower identity 
Yet, when a common name, spicy with the odor of the new western world, is given to a plant, I think we should keep it, in spite of Linnaean or pre-Linnaean nomenclature, and call our little group of inflated pouched orchids moccasin flowers, instead of lady slippers, as Britain does, a general title which confuses their personality with the European species. Lady slipper is not a word in keeping with hemlock and beech woods but the word moccasin throws meaning into the black shadows and brings to mind the stone axe and flint arrowheads found not long ago on the edge of a newly ploughed field that was but recently a piece of these same woods with careless joy we threaded the woodland way and reach her broad domain through scents of strength and beauty free as air we feel our savage kin and thus alone with conscious meaning where the Indians moccasin. We stopped at a point where a pair of chestnut stumps indicate the entrance to a wood road whose guardian gate posts and rails now lie among the ferns, keeping shape until touched and then separating into an intangible powder, half dust, half wood mold. On this bank, peeping incautiously from between bellworts and the black stalks of a little forest of damp and only half-open fronds of maidenhair ferns, was a single moccasin flower of unusual size and height, its pouch of an almost crimson hue. It stood like an outpost, commanding a view both up and down the shady road. I straightway picked it, carefully wrapped its stem and leaves in damp moss, and hid it in the depths of the chaise top, for, thought I, if, tomorrow being Saturday, any of the people coming down from the back country spy this flower, somebody will surely put two and two together, follow the trail into the woods, and make the whole colony prisoners. And among all our native orchids, this pink moccasin flower is the most hopeless to transplant, as away from its haunt in a year or two, at most, it pines away, appearing to find some unknown quality in its natal soil, with which it cannot be supplied. Within the wood edge, pairs of leaves and single flowers soon became more frequent, but these sank to insignificance when I came in sight of the first tree bowl. There, the moccasins were holding a woodland flower market of their own, peeping over each other's shoulders, crowding the edges of the leafy hollow, straying down the sides and clustering in the bottom, facing this way and that, wearing every shade of color from flesh white through pink to a deep veiny purple, and all nodding and swaying as they were continually jostled by the eager bees who came to make their purchases of pollen and nectar. Notwithstanding the great attraction that a pink moccasin flower in the hand offers us from its oddity, it is certainly much more beautiful in its haunts. There, the paler flowers counteract the somewhat veiny quality of the deeper, and the soft browns of the hemlock-strewn ground act as a setting to the whole, together with a surrounding air of mystery making it one of the half-dozen New England orchids for which true landscape value may be claimed. Hereabout it is the earliest comer of the tribe. Oh, no, I am forgetting that there is one of another household still earlier, the showy orchis, which pierces the mold with its lily-like leaves in late April or early May, in company with wake-robin, bloodroot, anemones, and yellow violets. 
even time o year does not know its haunt in the deep woods beyond lone town on the ridgefield road where i cherish a few plants of it so rare in this region by letting them alone in the hope that they will increase and that the seed may be borne to neighboring woods this orchis is most precise in its equipments and when in its first perfection of bloom it seems like an artificial plant of wax from its broad leaves sometimes six inches in length and damp to the touch to the tip of its spike of half a dozen spurred shaded purple flowers with broad white or violet lips where it is common it often gathers in crowds like the moccasin flowers or fringed orchises but with a few rare plants of my discovering each kept its distance from the other as prim as children made ready for a party who sit perched on chair edges in constrained attitudes to keep finery untumbled until the moment for departure comes in common with many of the tribe the showy orchis has on opening a delicate earthy fragrance that turns to a decided muskiness after the fertilization of the flower a perfume inseparable from leaf mold blossoms to whatever tribe they may belong one quality it lacks and that is gracefulness if its flower stem grew longer before the buds opened so as to raise them well above the leaves and give the wind a chance to sway and bend them the primness would vanish and the showy orchis be captivating indeed at present it reminds one of a lovely woman with so short a neck that she cannot turn her head another moccasin flower a taller cousin of the pink has sent a few venturesome pioneers over the hemlock ridge to test the climate and soil on the coast side of it for this family needs bracing air and usually keeps well away from salt water influences the yellow moccasin or as the french call it le soulier de notre dame comes in flower as the showy orchis passes and precedes the exquisitely painted showy moccasin flowers whose splendid rose and white blossoms often too on a stem seek high places and are seldom found in abundance south of maine new hampshire and vermont it is well called regina for it is queen of a princely family the yellow moccasin is a striking flower of the high shaded woodland landscape the uncluffed shoe itself is of a clear smooth yellow veined with purple the other two purplish petals hang as twisted strings with a hood-like sepal arching between the flowers singly or often in pairs are raised upon a stout leafy stalk a foot or two above the ground clearing the more woody undergrowth which serves as a background to deepen their color how the eye loves to linger upon yellow flowers of the three primary colors yellow always seems to me the most harmonious under all conditions from the first marsh marigold to the last brave wand of goldenrod even after hard frosts the same cheerful color wraps the low thickets wherever witch hazel blossoms giving the landscape through this last flower of the season a forecast of the willow tints of early spring roughly speaking without attempting a census it seems to me that taking the year through the majority of landscape flowers are yellow at least such species as wear this color grow in greater abundance than those of other hues 
and if the strange yet plausible theory of grant allen be true that all flowers were originally yellow but that in the processes of evolution they have experimented with other colors only to work back again to the original hue it is easy to account for the plentifulness of this color in may and early june when the tardiest ferns have unfolded and yielded their winter woolens to yellow warblers and hummingbirds for nest linings and the beech leaves have freed their hands from their furry mittens another orchid appears in the hemlocks in time of year's woods and in the woodland strips near the shore where the smooth shining leaves of the tway blade attract the eye even before it becomes aware of the spikes of purplish green-winged broad-lipped flowers that suggest the form of many a greenhouse orchid the great or lily-leaved tway blade is by far the more striking of the two and when a dozen plants grow in a circle they are of distinct landscape value this tway blade grows from a bulb and the bulbs are usually found in pairs one bearing the leaves and flower stalk the second either not fully developed or else having a pair of smaller leaves but not yielding flowers until the second year the leaves though primarily of an unctuous sap green color are often perhaps through premature ripeness streaked with yellows purples and other autumn leaf hues which add greatly to the beauty of the plant though if they were so pictured the rigid botanist would declare the colors unauthorized all of which proves that the plant seen in the landscape like the living bird in the tree is often plus some charming quality not accorded it by the textbooks the smaller tway blade or fan orchis is quite inconspicuous as to its flowers which are more wholly greenish and are borne only four or five on a stem its oval leaves too are usually smaller though not generally common when found it is usually in large colonies so that at a little distance the ground seems paved with the shining leaves that remind one of the mayanthemum or small false solomon seal of may woods both of the toy blades flourish equally well in dry or springy woods in fact i have found them the two sturdiest and most constant members of the race for they will endure transplanting and adapt themselves to new conditions very readily if the soil is in any way suited to their needs a few years ago i discovered a mixed colony blooming bravely in the hard blackened soil of a bit of cleared woodland from which the stumps had been burned and where the plough was already at the work of turning it into a field under these circumstances even time of year could not object to the taking away of plants when their haunt had literally vanished from around them so i rescued these tway blades and put them into a wild shady part of the home acres they not only lived but have spread new plants appearing here and there at a wide distance from their parents showing that the insects necessary for their fertilization have found them out in their new home except when we search for the rattlesnake plantain of late summer the orchid path now leads altogether through open places springy pastures bogs and meadows that were long ago redeemed from the bog condition but which are deep with the black soil and firmly rooted growths of other days farther north in the litchfield country the pink-purple arethusa may be discovered making rosy patches 
in the open cranberry swamps of early June, if you have the patience, clear eye, and steady footing necessary to penetrate her haunts. For, like Calypso, these flowers, with nymphs for sponsors, are furtive and elusive, even where they gather in considerable numbers. In middle June, the rose pogonia, or snake mouth, bearing a strong resemblance to Arethusa in shape and color, though a smaller flower, is found in the grassy bog meadows from Wakeman's Island, all up along the waterways quite through Lone Town. It does not grow in water, but among tufted grasses where threading springs that ooze up drop by drop keep its roots moist, the haunt beloved by the blue-fringed gentian of autumn. When you see the weedy-looking sprays of wild forget-me-not, then go slowly, and you will surely find grass clumps set thick with the slender, narrow-leaved stems, each holding one, or perhaps two, rosy, nodding flowers, the flat lip fringed and crested. If they are newly opened and the wind is blowing over them, a whiff of delicate fragrance will reach you before close contact reveals the whole strength of their perfume that is suggestive of Parma violets. As you stand quite still, holding a blossom against your face, while you search about with your eyes, you will perhaps discover a trail of pink all across the meadow, touching the brushy edge of the bog woods, where a very is rather calling you to him than warning you away by his shrill alarm note, Woo! Woo! And where, in anxious concealment, a low-nesting night heron, the last of a once clamorous treetop colony, is waiting for your departure to come out driven by necessity to openly hunt frogs for his greedy brood. Small as this begonia is, it adds a rosy color and becomes a feature in the landscape of the rank marsh meadows of June. Occasionally flowering with begonia, but usually later, its blooming season lasting from late June to middle July, comes the grass pink, or calipogon, of gray and the earlier botanists its first blooming is dated variously in my outdoor journals from June 19 in 1890 to June 28 in 1900. But as there are often ten or a dozen florets on a single stem, in moderate weather two weeks may pass between the opening of the lowest flower to the fading of the topmost on the scape. The name of grass pink is decidedly inappropriate for it and suggestive of a low-growing plant like the creeping phlox, which is also called by the same name locally. Calipogon, from the Greek, signifying beautiful beard, in reference to its fringed lip, is far more suitable. Here and there we find it following in the wake of Pogonia, its slender stalks a foot or two in height, with long grass-like leaves bearing the flowers well above the grass and low growths, to rest to rest against a background of tall cinnamon and royal ferns or brakes. To find Calipogon playing its part broadly in the landscape, we must go down toward the sea gardens, where cattail flags and the coarse leaves of the half-grown rose mallow mark the tide channels. One hazy day in the first week of July, Flower Hat and I went to the sea gardens together, I for the annual festival of Calipogon, she skeptically, in order to be convinced that within half a mile of the village orchids could be found in such quantities as to give their purplish color to an acre of wild growth. 
because Nell, always objects to standing in the middle of a sandy road with nothing to investigate or nibble, and as the meadow footing was too treacherous for her to cross, we went a wheel. I prefer walking on a flower hunt, but Flower Hat considered it too slow. That day, however, she learned that it is quicker to walk all the way than to ride part way and carry your bicycle cross lots, the other half, for no real flower hunter, by any chance, ever comes out of a meadow or bit of wood by the way he or she enters or goes and returns on the same side of a stream, if it be crossable. The meadow, or rather, the open common, for nothing is fenced there, on each side of the road, was white with the flat flower clusters of purple-stemmed angelica, topping stout stalks, sometimes six feet in height, and of the same general type of growth as wild carrot, but more vigorous and rigid throughout and with less compounded leaves. In pushing between these plants, a strong aromatic odor follows the bruising of even a single leaf. Long wands of colic root, rising from rosettes of lily-veined leaves, wave their mealy-white, bell-shaped blossoms above masses of brakes, dwarf wild roses, and purple milkwort, while the older flowers in the tangled background of silver birches and wild crabs repeated in shrub form the color of the angelica. We stood upon a long mound that was the relic of a dike thrown up years ago to keep the high tides, which sometimes ventured across the beach crest and down the road from drowning out the meadows, and looked across the expanse, unbroken on either side for a mile or so, save for a few groups of oaks that made dark islands in an inland sea of summer green. The sun came out, and Flower Hat blinked as she vainly tried to make the coquettish open-work brim of her headgear shield her eyes, and then, humbly accepting a huge leaf of cow parsnip for a parasol, again scanned the landscape. Do you see any orchids? she asked, after a moment or two. I'm sure I don't. Everything is big and common and all huddled together in an overgrown mess. I like the woods and runaway garden things much better. If you find one plant at a time, you can keep your presence of mind. To make anything of this jumble of hundreds of everything is like trying to play an unfamiliar page from Tristan on a strange piano with a new maestro standing behind taking your musical measure. I laughed, and merely pointed to a clump of cinnamon ferns a dozen feet before us. Oh! exclaimed Flower Hat, dropping the parsnip leaf and starting forward. About these ferns the calipogans had gathered in a sort of bow-knot, and then wandered off in an erratic course across the open, embroidering the green with cross-stitches and fillets of a color neither purple nor pink. Flower Hat gathered a handful of the flower spikes. There were so many that any moderate picking would not destroy the effectiveness of the picture, and suggested that we should go over into the shade to look at them. Dainty from tip to toe, she exclaimed, as she held up a flower stalk with many triangular buds still tight and trim at the top, while two or three freshly opened flowers at the bottom showed the broad-winged lip exquisitely crested and bearded with orange-yellow and deep pink hairs. How could you see such a delicate tracery of color amid all that barbaric mass of gold and green that takes twenty tints in the bright sunlight, she asked. 
partly by a practiced eye, partly by intuition, partly by lifelong knowledge of the component parts of these early July meadows, I said. How do you, by glancing at a page of music, trace out a faintly suggested theme amid a thicket of other notes? Each to his craft, that is all. Why, she cried presently, these flowers are set on the stock somewhat somehow upside down. What was a lip and twayblade is a lid. As I was about to explain the lack of the usual twist in the future seed vessel that made Calipogon wear its chin on its forehead, contrary to family rules, a burst of bird music from a crab tree overhead made us exchange signals of caution and pause with bated breath. Robin, Grosbeak, Purple Finch, what bird, keeping the spring ecstasy until midsummer, was pouring forth such song? He was a ventriloquist also, for the notes appeared to come from two parts of the tree at once. Instantly, Flower Hat was on the alert, her sensitive ear rejoicing in the melody. In spite of the briars which enviously clutched at her rose garland and ribbons, she leaned gradually backward until her head almost touched the ground and peered up into the tree. Meanwhile, I, by stretching the other way, discovered the singer, or rather singers, for there were two of them, splendid orchard orioles, brave in chestnut and black suits. They were first singing at each other, and then swaying sidewise toward some unseen object, going through the most remarkable gestures, opening and closing their wings and using them like arms, with all the impressive agony of tenors of the opera. Suddenly they stopped, gave a few scolding notes, launched at each other savagely, then flew to some tall blackberry canes where we could watch them easily and, striking effective attitudes, recommenced their song with frantic vigor. What can all this be about? Flower Hat whispered. Cherchez la femme, I answered, pointing to an elder bush. It is too late in the season for courting, she replied at the same time following the direction of my finger with her eyes. Enfant, it is never too late, especially if your early spring plans have come to grief. Besides, I'm sure, by the frantic hurry that those two birds are in, that they are young widowers in whose elated breasts hope is triumphing over experience. On the elder bush, toward which Flower Hat gazed, perched la femme, in a subdued olive cloak and yellowish petticoat. She scarcely turned her head, yet saw all that was passing, and when the song ended in a pitched battle, during which feathers flew, she joined not the victor, but the vanquished, where he went to plume himself in a distant crab-tree. The next time we went to the sea gardens, it was the last week in the same month, which had been a time of such dryness that we could easily drive across the meadows. Flower Hat was still skeptical about orchids. Yellow-fringed orchis, do you say, growing in this withering heat? If you had said that they were in the wet meadows by time of year's woods, where we found the splendid purple fringy ones last week, I might believe you, but never here, she averred. Yes, here. I persisted. Orange and white, fringed and ragged, green orchis, too, with its finely cleft, cross-shaped lip. Shut your eyes, and don't open them, until I say, now. 
do be careful not to drive into that boggy pond at the end of Meeker's Ditch in your enthusiasm, she answered, closing her eyes and grasping my arm as we jolted and bumped from the road across a gully into the open meadow. Beyond, from over the beech crest fringed with fruit-laden wild plum bushes, the vibrating heat rose in sheets above the sand. Angelica was still in flower, and the small, bright, pea-shaped blossoms of wild indigo feathered the open with lemon yellow. But this color paled before the waves of color varying from orange to salmon that closed around the wheels of the chaise after we had driven eastward for a couple of hundred yards. Now, I said, look and see an orcus landscape in New England. For the first and only time in my recollection, Flower Hat was speechless. Each summer, two acres in extent are literally overwhelmed and drenched with the splendid color of this barbaric orange flower. Yet its haunt has already been encroached upon by the onion raiser and small farmer, who, with growing intelligence, finds the deep, rich soil well worth redeeming. Until, I fear, another half-dozen years will see this flower driven to a few uncultivatable borders. The plant stalk itself sometimes grows three feet in height, with lance-shaped leaves and a flower spike of often thirty florets, with beard-shaped fringed lips and long spurs. It is of firm growth, and yet, like so many plants of slightly brackish or marshy soil, loses quality when picked, often refusing to revive in water. Here and there, I pointed out to Flower Hat a spike or two of the white-fringed orchis, which looks like a small albino brother of the orange, and also a few stray plants of the dull green, ragged orchis, with a cross-shaped cleft lip. This last has a weedy look, and is without any of the dainty fragility of the fringed orchises. Consequently, it must be classed with the botanist flowers of purely intellectual interest. My eyes are blind with color, said Flower Hat, at the end of fifteen minutes. I will believe anything you tell me after this, and I'm going to buy a soft felt hat with a brim that will turn down all round like a cowboy's. Thus was her conversion completed though she never wholly abandoned flowery hats, and for a reward I took her for our next outing to Tommy Year's Wood to spend the day with ferns, and to see, as she begged, a nice cool orchid in a shady place within sound of running water. When August comes, the reign of the orchid tribe is well nigh over, and from this month onward it is represented by the group of ladies' tresses, the slender plants of wet meadows and grasslands, whose narrow leaves give them, at a little distance, the appearance of some odd flowering grass or of a delicate white flax. If, however, you pick a stalk, round which the florets are set spirally, so that the spike appears to be twisted, you will find the tribal likeness, the crystal white texture, and the delicate earthy fragrance. Over half a dozen species, two grow plentifully hereabout, one in the drier grass, one in the deep bog meadows, loved by Pagonia. The first, the slender ladies' tresses, a fragile little plant with two plantain-like ground leaves, and a slender stalk a foot or more in length, around the top of which the flowers appear to be wound, like garlands, 
about a maypole, is abundant in August and September. The other, called Nodding Ladies' Tresses, stronger of growth and more fragrant, is the farewell orchid of the year, having asters for its companions, and when its moist haunts are sheltered, it often lingers into late October, in company with fringed gentians and the fresh growth of meadow ferns that springs up after the summer heat. There is a bolder, scattered ridge that rises from time o' year's river to the next range of hills. Between these boulders, time out of mind, great trees grew that have fallen into decay and been replaced by another and yet another generation, so that all between the rocks is in dark shadow and deep with wood mold. The granite fragments are cloaked with mosses, polypodes, and liverworts, while the rarer spleenworts cling to where the dripping rocks interrupt a spring's course, and every dead stump and fallen bough is fantastically trimmed with lichens and fungus growths. This ridge, or the mountain, as the hillside folk call it, is reached by the tree bridge, a chestnut trunk hewn level on one side and thrown across the narrow mouth of the ravine through which the river flows. The first impression on entering the wood to which the bridge is the only pass across the river is that it is the realm of ferns alone. Flower hat dropped quickly upon the nearest rock and, resting backward on one hand, declared, I thought the meadows were dazzling enough, but here I positively can distinguish nothing. It seems like surging waves of green, breaking over a coast of green rocks, with green spray rising in the air. Look where your hand is resting among the leaves, I said. There, on a sloping bit between two rocks, so steep that the earth could not have lodged, except for the twigs and wood debris, that made a pocket, nestled rosettes of round green leaves netted with white veins. From each tuft grew a shaft, ending in a cone-shaped spike of small pouched flowers that glistened in the light with the crystal whiteness of the Indian pipe, tinged with green shadows. There is the nice cool orchid in a shady place within sound of running water, and its name suits its haunt, I added wickedly. Rattlesnake plantain, from the mottlings on the leaves, their habit of growth, and the reputed cure afforded by the plant for the bite of the reptile. Are rattlesnakes ever found here? said Flower Hat, looking anxiously at the numerous holes beneath the rocks, which really had a suggestive appearance. It is exactly the sort of place where that young schoolteacher who was out flower hunting backed into a den of the reptiles, and Elsie Venner stared them out of countenance and rescued him. No, it is certainly cool here, she continued, and the river sound makes it seem even chilly but I am not quite reconciled to calling such a pale mite of a flower an orchid. I cannot rid myself of the feeling that the word implies something magnificent in itself, or rich in its massed coloring, like the calipogon and orange-fringed orchis in the sea gardens. The lily-leaved twayblade made a picture, but there is surely no quality to this homely flower. As she spoke, her eyes, now focused to the shade, again rested on the mat of plants. The light was concentrated upon them, and in the short interval they had seemingly moved into the foreground, quite filling it, while the ferns, mosses, and boulders, retreating up the slope out of range, became tributary, merely a frame to enhance the orchid's whiteness. 
End of chapter 5